Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Tell me where you started having trouble. Uh, like three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) This actually pertains to the COVID stuff. Radical freedom and radical evil. So the Hegelian dialectic is the idea. He begins with the slave and the master. What is a master? Well, a master is someone with a slave. What is a slave? Slave is someone with a master. That is its identity over and against the other, its identity through difference. In the Hegelian dialectic, the idea is that the slave is at an advantage over the master because he can understand, well, actually, it's not the master that I fear, but it's what he can do to me. And that is the fear of death. Hegel takes all that up as a kind of psychology. The master and slave can be within you. And this is what is taken up by Zizek, but by Freud, really, that the superego is the equivalent of the master. The ego is the equivalent of the slave. It is that dialectic that we call identity through difference. My problem, I think it was how uh, Zizek was, like how he was reading that Hegelian dialectic. So remember, Zizek is is an atheist. Mm -hmm. His whole notion of human personality, but also of God, you know, the God that he doesn't believe in is this kind of God of the big other that, you know, would be the equivalent of the superego. And so Zizek is following, you know, Schelling was Hegel's roommate. And he gives us these several attempts to show how God himself is in this dialectic. And ultimately, the dialectic is between something and nothing. And so God himself, you know, there's nothing outside of God. And then Schelling begins to play with the, the nothing. And God desired this nothing. And, of course, Zizek doesn't believe in God, but what he's describing is the way that the human subject arises. You know, what is a subject? Well, there's only the subject in and through the dialectic. There is only this identity through difference. He doesn't believe you can cure this. In Hegel, we often talk about thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and the work of the spirit in world history is this synthesis. You know, the antithesis and thesis are working themselves out in the world spirit. Zizek says, nah, he thinks that's not really there in Hegel. And if it is, he thinks that Hegel doesn't really believe that. And so Zizek is saying, yes, we're deluded. You know, the human subject arises through this dialectic. The dialectic is itself a kind of delusion. But he's saying that's all we got. You don't want to get rid of the delusion. You don't want to get rid of the primordial lie because that's the basis upon what human... And of course, he, he says, you know, well, there is a kind of choice. But what is the choice? It's a choice between entering into language and becoming fully human or not doing that. Well, <laughs> most of us don't realize the opportunity uh, that the best situation is if we would not have been born in the first place. But most of us are not given that opportunity. It's a kind of joke. And so Zizek is a true, yes, this is a miserable situation that we're in psychologically, Hmm. philosophically. He does believe that we can manipulate this. He'll talk about love, but it's a little suspect as to what love does he really believe in agape love he talks about agape love but it's hard to see how you can make a complete departure from the dialectic up above is a blog on paul's futility versus hegelian dialectic yeah i think it was it was somewhere there and so my point is the futility that Paul is describing is made of the same stuff as Hegelian dialectic. Paul talks about the universe being subjected to futility. What futility? 
Well, the futility of suffering, of sin, and ultimately of the word futility, the word that he's using there in Romans 8, it's a similar root word that he uses back when he talks about the lie, that the futility and the lie are interwoven. Well, that's exactly what Zizek is saying. But Zizek would say, yeah, and that's as good as it gets. And of course, Paul says, well, no, there is the truth. There is an alternative human subject. I don't think this is just a game in the language that I'm using because it's philosophical or psychoanalytic. It may sound like, oh, you're just playing some kind of arcane game with language. But no, I think this really is a description of the human predicament. However, you know, I think we could use different language to describe, you know, my neighbors that are being hauled away in coffins, I think that they suffer from the thing that Paul is describing. You know, what is the dialectic? Well, in some way, it's this playing with the symbolic order. The symbolic order is the law. And we imagine that there's life in the law. I think this thing really does kill you one way or another. In other words, we take death. We literally take death up. The law may be Donald Trump for some people. It may be right-wing Republican Party. It may be, maybe it's the Democratic Party. Maybe it's nationalism. I think this thing kills you. And it may manifest itself. I'm just, you know, that we're just using this vocabulary. I think it could be told in any number of vocabularies, but we just need to express it in some way. And then we can say, oh, okay, well, I, yeah, this ties into the knowledge of good and evil, for example. That's a dialectic in which the good is over and against the evil, the evil is over and against the good. Or maybe it's in the, the language of the law of the mind and the law of the body. I think it could be in Marxist materialist you know, terms, in terms of capitalism the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. So there's a lot of ways of describing the dialectic. But I, th- I am convinced that that's what Paul is identifying as sin. The thing that we get caught up in is this, this notion of an orientation to the law in which we imagine there's life in the law, and that kills us. Yeah, yeah. That, and this is the connected up there in the chapter, Radical Freedom. I, again, I think this is directly connected to our neighbors. Well, they're not going to get a shot because, or they're not going to be aware of masks because they're free. Nobody tells them what to do. What is total freedom? Well, total freedom would be total freedom of choice in which nothing constrains. Absolutely nothing constrains you. Oh, is that true for anybody? Is that even true for God? that nothing constrains God. No, God's constrained by who he is, by his goodness, by his love, by his character. I think that's why radical freedom, Zizek sees this, he understands this. Radical freedom and radical evil are the same thing. He just happens to believe that's the case. Which would go back to like the idea of Genesis 3. Like We, we chose to be free from god's decision of what's right and wrong and so we create this problem but we think we're free within it yeah that all our freedom is a freedom of choice yeah well that's a very poor that that is kind of the definition of freedom that people are working with but i think in christianity freedom is to be what god made us to be yeah that's true freedom is that we we are creatures we are finite creatures created for a purpose that we ourselves did not, you know, unless we find the purpose for which we were created, I believe we're constrained then, you know, I think this is the slavery that that we can experience. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot more sense. And this is the thing with, uh, you know, radical evil. Of course, I don't believe in radical evil. Radical evil would be to say, you know, that there's an ontological basis for that evil is grounded in its own evil. But having said that I don't believe in radical evil, I think that in this lie, radical evil appears as a possibility. In other words, it's not true, it's wrong, it's a delusion, but it's a part of the delusion that I think Zizek and Lacan, and actually there's this Alenka Zupanacek, and there's a whole group, they're talking about radical evil. Well, it used to be that when people talked about radical evil, they were talking about the demonic, you know, or Satan. Of course, none of these people believe in Satan. 
But I think what we're talking about, it is the equivalent of uh, a satanic. And, and what I mean by that, this serves in place of Satan, I think, for, for them. This is why in Lacan and Zizek, evil is the original condition. And we arrive, then goodness comes from out of evil. Now, that it's interesting that this almost sounds like Calvin. Yeah. But, of course, Zizek does identify Calvin. He said, no, Calvin's a pervert. But there is the sense that they're talking about manipulating evil and that e that goodness is just a kind of the other side of evil. And this may be ambiguous the way I'm describing it, but I think it's ambiguous because it's also ambiguous for them. I don't think they quite know what evil desire they call jouissance, and then they talk about a regular desire. But I don't think, and my point in my book is, I don't think you can really tell the difference. This is what Ricoeur says about Lacan, is, well, they, they do talk about making a difference, but there's really no basis of a difference between evil and good. We said that radical freedom is also radical evil. So in that sense, our choice to not be constrained is what it's enslaving us. That's the whole dialectic thing. The choice of freedom over the choice of love is enslaving. What we really are constrained by is love of neighbor, love of God. That should constrain us. But to imagine that we just choose freedom apart from love is enslaving. You know, this, I think, does get into the psychoanalytic part of it. I saw a movie several years back. It was kind of like the kingpin. He was actually, it was, he was dealing marijuana in the United States. But he made a, you know, he had this huge mansion and had everything. And his father was a postal worker. And his father never, he never said anything. He just said, well, son, the only thing that I want you to do in life is enjoy yourself. That's Zizek's depiction of an obscene superego father. Oh, enjoy, enjoy. It's an impossibility. It is a pursuit of a kind of obscenity that you would transgress. And what you're imagining is that you're totally free, but of course you're totally enslaved. I think that's the biblical depiction of sin. We're subject to this passions. I think this is Paul's principle of the flesh, that the, the law is taken up residence in the flesh so that normal things like eating and sex and, you know, just the normal things that we do, given this obscene superego supplement, they, that gives rise to a kind of exponential desire. We all understand it because we're, we, we're kind of there. But if you can step back from it and realize, oh, something's got a handle on this thing that is giving it a significance that it does not deserve. And I think that's what I'm describing when we talk about life and the law. You know, when we say life, that, that may be a kind of ambiguity, but, you know, what people imagine they're grabbing when they get gusto or power or whatever it is that, you know, you may not be able to name this thing. What drives, what is it that is the human project? And so I think that's part of the thing that we're, we're touching upon between the mixture between freedom and evil. I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, serial killers, just to make it a little bit darker. But their whole point is they, they want this freedom to try to figure out if they're going to enjoy torturing and killing this other person. They, they, they even go back to the site wherever they dispose of the body to try to replicate the whatever they did. So it's a fulfilled desire, but at the end of the day, it's not enough because they try to keep replicating it and i think even in, in some of the uh, interviews i've seen of some of them they're like you know they, they were one of them i think it was ted bundy who, he was describing that you keep doing it and you do it more thinking it's gonna fulfill you better but it just leaves you like more like empty because <laughs> it, 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 you can never reach that enjoyment fulfilling that desire so I mean, it is going a little bit darker, I guess, but, but, well, I, but yeah. that pursuit of enjoyment it, becoming that obscene superego, I think uh, 
serial killers would be a good example of that. I think it, it is in a way kind of the perfect example because, you know, FB profiling is a kind of new thing. Yeah. And the basis of it is actually what we're describing. You can profile people because they start acting according to a particular pattern. Yeah. In other words, they'll follow a, almost a law. They'll do it exactly the same way. So it's, it's a law that they establish themselves, yes, just yes, like we it, did in Genesis 3. Right, right. In other words, this thing, you have to do it in this way. And that's exactly the way Freud describes neurosis. In other words, the more you are captured by this thing, by the neurotic, people think, oh, I'm achieving freedom. But of course, you're actually acting like a, it's almost mechanical. It's highly predictable. And so you can profile these people because they are acting out a law, uh, a, a kind of strict pattern that they can't break. FBI profiling is based on the idea that this thing enslaves you. Yeah, and that's how they catch most of them. Just follow the, the pattern. Yeah, I mean, even reading Romans 7, the whole idea of the eye there, it's a description of this. It's a pattern that we, that we create, but we're enslaved by it. And so the only way to get rid of it is Someone has to die, <laughs> and that has to be our ego. The way that death plays into it is, you know, we talk about the requirement of the law. What law? The law of sin and death, <laughs> I think, is the law that we're actually talking about. Yeah. It does feed upon death. It does, in other words, that's the ultimate power. I think that's what a serial killer is going over, going after. Well, the ultimate power over another human life is to take that life from someone. Yeah. I think that's, you know, we often think of the mafioso or the uh, the cartels that they have to kill people. Oh, I don't think they look at it that way. That's a side benefit of the job. Yeah. But they have total control over, in other words, they really can take people's lives. And that is the ultimate power. That's the, you know, that's the power of the state, I think, ironically, that is taken up into the individual. And so you literally become the law and you gain life through the law because what is traded is death. Mm -hmm. Death is circulated in that economy. See, sometimes it just directly involves death. I, I think in your book, when, when you talk about this, the masculine and the feminine, I think at some point you mentioned it switches, and so that, that's where I got lost. <laughs> I, I was making the point with Romans 7, 1 to 4. And so, yeah, it gets confusing because I think Paul is actually using the woman there, and what is being described in terms of Zizek is the masculine. And so what is the masculine orientation to the law? It is that the law is absolute you know think of the pharisaical paul or if you want to do it in terms of onto theology you know that uh, you can say everything that philosophy says it all or if you want to do it in terms of science that newtonian science you lay out the law and even god is subject to the law i don't know if you've come across the term onto theology I, it may be uh, Kant who coins the term ontology. You know, think of uh, Anselm's ontological argument that on the basis of ontology or being, which is just the word that we're using, on the basis of being, you arrive at God. And so Duns Scotus is going to say the being of the world little b gets us to big B, which is being, or think of it in Anselm, little w, human words, gets us to the word of God. They're on a parallel. And that's masculine. In other words, this idea that you can say it all, I, and this, of course, is just Zizek or Lacan. But in a strange way, it's also Paul. But the problem, the, the confusion comes because when Paul is describing this in Romans 7, 1 to 4, he uses the illustration of the woman whose husband is either dead or alive. 
the husband, of course, represents the law. If the husband is alive and she consorts with another, then she's an adulteress. If the husband is dead and she consorts with another, well, then that's permitted. But the point is that the woman and her act are completely defined by the husband representative of the law. That's in, in Paul's illustration. And so in his illustration, he says, you know, you have died with Christ. The law is suspended. And so you've been joined with Christ and you have been, of course, now Christ is put in place of the law where the law mediates God or we understand everything through the law. And here, you know, in uh, just spread it out and think in terms of language or philosophy or culture, you know, what you can put any number of things in the place of the law, just the authority of culture, maybe. This works out in Japan quite literally. You know, when you ask a Japanese man, who, who are you? They'll say, well, I work for Toshiba, or I work for Toyota, or I work, you know. In other words, they'll tell you the name of their company. Yeah, the identity is based on their work. The symbolic order. Hmm. So in a sense, uh, this sounds arcane and strange, but actually I think it just, it, in many ways, it works out actually in society. That most men, in other words, we're not really taught when we say masculine and feminine, we're not talking about people's actual biological, maybe I misused the word here, gender. Maybe I shouldn't have said gender because gender does sound biological. But we're talking about an orientation. And so even in Paul's illustration, the woman is in Zizek's illustration, masculine. Mm -hmm. because she's she's identified through the law and that would be the masculine orientation and again i think this is just sort of true this is too big of a stereotype but in japan i found it to be true you know that who, who who comes to church well men already have their identity they have their identity in their in their work or simply in being japanese but there is the sense that women are in Japan at least, they're more uh, mobile. They can move around more. And it's not that they're rejecting the law, it's just that they're not defined by it. The way that you get this in Zizek, that the law is not everything, that being Japanese is not everything. Working for Toshiba turns out not to be everything. But isn't that what we're talking about in Christianity? The law is not everything. And that's Paul's argument throughout Romans that there is what the covenant with Abraham precedes the law and the fulfillment of it in Christ comes after the law. You know, what is the, the role of circumcision? Well, it was with Abraham, I think, a sign. You know, Abraham presumed before he met God that he had power to propagate his name through his children. Through his sexual prowess as a man, he could propagate his name. There is life in his own power. And circumcision was a, was a sign of the covenant that he had made with God. And in that covenant, what he's saying is, no, God is the source of life. I'm not the source of life. That's supposed to be the idea behind circumcision, is that God has life. The law doesn't have life. Circumcision, this is Paul's argument, the law is not the thing. It's not the thing that contains life or truth. You know, it is mediating the covenant. And so the perversity of the Jews, the perversity of Paul when he was a Pharisee, or the human perversity, he just spreads it out and he says, this is the human problem, is you imagine that the power, the life, you know, you have is in some way accessible to you through your own power to propagate yourself or power of the law or again the power of the culture or the in other words what we're talking about is identity an enduring identity you know the babylites build a big tower and they're going to storm the heavens on their basis of their ability to build really good brick towers abraham is going to be circumcised and so the imagery i think of circumcision is supposed to be that god has the power and we depend on God. But yeah, the promise comes first, then Ishmael 
comes after, and then then circumcision comes after he's born. Is that true? I think, I think so. The promise is chapter 12, which comes right after the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Yeah, chapter 12, God calls him. Chapter 13 is where Abraham and Lot go on their different ways. Uh, chapter 13 is, 14 is where, where he frees Lot and then gives his tithings to Melchizedek. And then 15 is where, where God promises uh, him a, a son. Chapter 17. Isaac's born oh. after that, but Ishmael is born before that. Ah. Yeah, Ishmael is born in chapter 16. So first is the promise in chapter 15. Ishmael is born in 16. And then the pact is confirmed by the circumcision on chapter 17. That's very interesting because that's kind so, of so a confirmation. Isaac, yeah, and Isaac would be the child after the circumcision. So Ishmael is Abraham presuming upon his own power. Yeah. And circumcision is to say, I depend on God. Yeah. I this, mean, of course, you, know, you understand this all gets quite literal. And I don't know how, how much it ties in to idolatry. It's often the phallic symbol, the yeah. male genitals. And of course, that's what Freud is talking about, that when a child goes through the Oedipus complex, there is the sense of what he calls the castration complex. There is a kind of subjection to the father. And so this, this is, it's kind of an interesting perversity that develops in regard to the law. But Freud is just, he's not doing this in connection to the Bible. He just thinks this is the human condition, that we all have this obscene superego. It's not a real father. It, he used to think that literally, historically, children were being abused by their father. And then he realized, oh, this that's not true. Zizek, what would be the feminine then? The feminine is the positive side of this. The feminine, you know, is, is the suspension of the law. The mm -hmm. feminine says about the law, you know, in Zizek terms, the ability to question the law is a feminine hysteria in which you're saying the law is not everything. Okay. And Zizek says that's Christianity. And of course, a little bit, I think he's right, because in Paul, He's describing the church as the bride of Christ, in which Christ is the groom and the church is the bride, and Christ then embodies the law. But that's not the way to talk. I mean, not that's the wrong way to say it. It's not that Christ embodies the law. It's that Christ is larger than the law. Christ suspends the, the obscene side of the law. And that's the word that Paul is using there, katargatai, that Luther translates as afhebum, and then Hegel will take afhebum, and this is one of the key words in Hegel. So it's kind of interesting. It's, on the, it's around this notion that we're describing, that the Hegelian dialectic is being described, and that this is what Zizek is primarily working with, that in the feminine position, the obscene superego side of the law is suspended. I think we could almost go with that other than, you know, I think it doesn't go far enough. You can do that, strangely enough, he says that you can only do this through Christ. But what he means through Christ is not what we mean. He means historically that we have to pass through Christianity. But it becomes a little unclear because it seems like you can do this just through death itself. The feminine in, in Zizek, which is the suspension of the law, that would be the masculine in Paul, which is what has to die in order for the feminine to be free from the law. Well, Paul doesn't say that the law is abolished. Now, this, is, this gets into translation. Well, his idea, it's a, in a marriage. And so once the husband dies, the woman is free from that marriage uh, relationship with the husband. So that would be the suspension of the law that Paul is describing. That's not the way he uses the illustration, though. And this is Zizek's point with the illustration. You know, in the illustration, the woman is, she wants to, to love someone. She wants to consort with someone. 
Zizek reads into this and says, well, you know, part of consorting, part of love, obscene love, is you need the law to have the love. Not the, in other words, you need the obstacle of the law. That she can only consort successfully in a situation where, where the law forbids it. This is Zizek's illustration. You know, Kant uses the illustration if a man were to commit adultery, you know, he's thinking about committing adultery. And they built a gallows outside of his house. And he knew that in the morning they would hang him if he did the deed. Kant says, well, we know that that's the purpose of the law is to prompt us to do the right thing. Zizek says, well, no, actually, some men can only enjoy a night of pleasure knowing that a gallows awaits in the morning. In other words, that's Paul's description in, in Romans chapter 1. Knowing that these things deserve death, they do them anyway. And I think this goes back to our previous conversation. What makes for this obscene love relationship? You know, and again, here we're talking about pretty practical things. Why do people have affairs? Because of the obstacle. They need the obstacle yeah. because and this is Zizek, you know, this may be going beyond Paul, but I think it's not entirely. You know, the woman might be saying, well, deep within me, there is this kernel of who I really am that cannot be defined by the law. So doing the, you know, the family and marriage, that's the traditional social order. But am I defined by this social order? Isn't who I am in some way in, in other words, there's a perversity at work here. I'm going to establish myself over and against the law. And Zizek is saying, this is perverse. This is a perverse love. So in the illustration, when he comes to talking about the Christian, he doesn't identify us with the woman, but he says, we have died with Christ and we're in the place of the dead husband, but we're from the place in which the law emanates in the first place. That's in Christ Jesus. This is actually in A.T. Robinson in his commentary. And it sounds so Zizekian. And of course, Robinson, there was no Zizek when he was writing. But the way he's writing it, he says, well, it's like there is a hollow space in the law. There is a place within the law that the law is suspended. Think of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees or whoever it was that, with the woman taken in adultery. And, you know, he just sits and writes in the sand, you know, and the language there is the same language with his finger in the dirt. It's the same language used in describing God authoring the law, writing the law upon the tablets of stone. Here is the author of the law and he suspends the law. And so I think that's the sense. The law is not everything. And the dead husband, or in the place of Christ, we die to the law. In other words, the woman, it doesn't matter what she does. She's defined by the law. And strangely enough, that's the masculine. And so for Zizek, the positive thing is the feminine that can question the law, says the law is not everything. Or is that what you were saying? Did I misunderstand what you were saying? Yeah, I, I think we were probably saying the same thing, but I just didn't word it properly. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm totally on board with with what's being said. And of course, the, you know, you can't take this literally as applying to male and female gender, because what we're describing is an orientation. But in that orientation, we all take up the, the position of what Zizek would call the feminine, but what Paul identifies as the place of the husband. Ontotheology is masculine, it would say it all. And the alternative then is Christianity. I, you know, it is the feminine. And the feminine is you can't say it all. You can't encapsulate God in a philosophy. You can't arrive at the being of God through the being of the world. For example, with how, uh, you know, like with movements like the LGTV and all that stuff, like it sounds very familiar to. You know what I think sometimes happens there with them, like they they make their I identity the absolute, so it causes this problem where their orientation it's something that is enslaving them. 
in, in, a, in a way. At yeah. least I'm not just trying to wrap, you just think of an example that. I think what you can say, whatever your sexual orientation, if that becomes your identity, then you're just doing identity through the law. Yeah. In other words, I'm a man. I'm a man's man. That can become a kind of identity that is enslaving. But yeah. so too can homosexuality or you know any of the sexual orientations. Can it's kind of be like, you know, like with the macho type of thing, you know, like men can't cry and things like that. That's an, a way of being enslaved to an idea that it's not true. So you're never free to express any emotions as a guy because you're a man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in a sense, the homosexuality, you know, this is Foucault. Foucault was a, a, a homosexual and was trying, he came and experimented in San Francisco with sadomasochistic homosexuality, eventually died of AIDS. But what he was trying to do was to alter his subjectivity. Well, that I, I think that's just an extreme case of doing identity through the symbolic order. The symbolic order may be gay, it may be bisexual, it may be homosexual. But to imagine that who we are is through our gender or through our sexual orientation is just more of the same. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, it even applies to heterosexual too, because we, we also identify ourselves. And I think that would be a good example of uh, identity uh, through difference. Like we are not them, and so we base our identity with this other thing. So we we fall into the same problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Freud, of course, thought that homosexuality was the child is identifying with the father, wants wants to be the father to the child. I don't know if any of that's true. And I, if I had somebody come to church, I'm not trying to change their sexual orientation, but what I would say to everybody is the same thing. Whatever you, whatever your sexual orientation, that's not who you are. Yeah, that's not definitive of who you are. It is very controversial now, but I think it's it's the same issue with people who are alcoholic. I mean, they they could be sober for forty years and they'll still say I'm an alcoholic. But they they still base their their identity through that issue. In that sense, you're never truly free because you're still experiencing that orientation. And you know, I think we can say about ourselves, I have these proclivities or I have this neurosis or I have this sin problem, but that's not who I am. Yeah. That doesn't define me. And I think that's the whole departure from Romans 7 to Romans 8. You know, we all may experience Romans 7, but that's not who we are. Yeah. Problem is that's that's how it's been taught for way too long. Romans seven is a description of a Christian. <laughs> yeah. So we, I, we all start falling into that uh, that description. I think it, yeah, I think it'd drive you crazy. I mean, I think it literally drives people crazy that they they get caught up in this thing, and they imagine that they have to some way work this thing out. Yeah. And you can't. You know, that was the illustration I gave with Lacanian psychoanalysis that, you know, why does somebody go to the psychoanalyst? Because they think the psychoanalyst can explain to them their neurosis or their sickness. And of course, in Lacanian theory, that is their sickness, is to imagine that there is an explanation. And once they relinquish the, the idea that the psychoanalyst knows anything or that there's an explanation, then they're on their way to the to a cure. And that may sound a little strange, but actually it fits with Augustinian picture of evil. You know, evil makes no sense. Uh, you know, there's no making sense of it. Our tendency is to want to make sense of things. Yeah, you can't. It's evil, <laughs> and that's you know that's always the thing they'll do. They'll say you know the the neighbor who was the killer. This why did he do it? Or well, he doesn't know why he did it. If he knew why he did it, he wouldn't have done it. Yeah. That's sort of the Trump presidency. You know, what is this about? Well, that's the wrong question. It's not about anything. It's just chaos. It, it gets us caught up in it or it gets us captured, I think. Yeah, yeah that's one of the reasons I started liking uh, N.T. Wright. It's, he talks a lot about that. Like we, we focus so much on the questions of why this bad thing happened instead of how can I fix it? You, you can never explain evil because it's just evil. Like you said, it's just chaos. It's, just something that's destroying God's creation, but our business is not of trying to figure that out. It's trying to restore what's been broken. But 
And of course, I think that's hard. That's hard for us to do. I think that's where we're at. We are in the business of restoring. (laughs) All right, that was week four. This one is sort of complicated. Kierkegaard, right? Yeah. Kierkegaard is the one who speaks about the sickness unto death. It's a destructive pattern that we're, we're in, what we talked already. It's just almost directly. It's the uh, sickness unto death. And, you know, Kierkegaard does the whole thing with despair. And, you know, Lazarus, Jesus says, Lazarus isn't, he's not dead. He's just fallen asleep. Kierkegaard does this whole thing. The sickness unto death is not death. The sickness unto death is this orientation. I think it's just in Kierkegaard's language, it's the same thing we're we're describing. He just uses a different vocabulary, but it's just uncanny how close his vocabulary is to what uh, Zizek is doing. So the sickness is not unto death, you know, John 11, 4, and yet Lazarus died. When the disciples un- misunderstood the words which Christ joined, Lazarus, our friend, is asleep, he said plainly, Lazarus is not dead. So then Lazarus is dead, and yet this sickness was not unto death. He was dead, and this sickness is not unto death. <laughs> uh, it's the usual Kierkegaard thing. You've know, you got to be a little bit patient. Yeah. With it. But that's what he's saying is that it's this orientation that is the sickness unto death. And so he's making the distinction it really doesn't pertain to death per se in the Christian understanding. Even death is, it is not death that, that is the sickness unto death. Still, everything which is called earthly and temporal suffering, want, sickness, wretchedness. He's saying none of this is the sickness unto death. The sickness unto death is worse than death. It's worse than death. He says it's comparable to a sickness, but it's not, you know, these sufferings are not the sickness unto death. There is despair that is the sickness unto de- death. Despair is a sickness of the spirit in the self, and so it may assume a triple form. In despair at not being conscious of having a self, in despair at not willing to be oneself, in despair at willing to be oneself. In other words, he's saying that we take this thing up within ourselves in our own self-orientation. Uh, I did a blog on this, I'm not me. And I was quoting, you know, Kierkegaard. But, you know, I think that, again, the language may get people. They may think, oh, this is crazy. But I think what we're describing is our own self-relation, that we would be ourselves, but the only reason we would be ourselves is because we're not. We can't quite obtain ourselves. We can't quite be I. I'm not me. The cogito, I think, therefore, I am. The two things are separate. I'd like to join them. That's the sickness unto death. And you can join them in any number of ways. And what I'm saying, the negative unity of the Lacanian real, the conflict between the law and the I, between I think and therefore I am, is in Paul the body of death. I think Paul is describing the same thing, this agonistic struggle. And it's an objectified, you know, the way that you would resolve it is in some way through the symbolic order. Descartes, I think, I think. I am. Isn't that a perfect description of what we would do with language or with the law? Through the law, I establish myself. I am the power. I have the power of being within language in which I will establish myself. That's despair. In other words, that's the perversity of this thing. Kierkegaard just says, we can do this in three ways. You don't even realize that you have a self. Or you would like to be yourself, which means you're not. Or uh, you would like not to be yourself. You'd like to be somebody else. But he's saying all three are the same thing. And and the answer for Kierkegaard is because he's a Christian, that we understand the relationship of ourself and the one who constituted the relation, which identifies that's the picture in Genesis that Paul talks about. The man is through the woman. The woman is through the man. But it's God who holds them together, that God is in the relationship. And I think that any time we're talking about the image of God in human beings, it's not like we float free of who God is. No, that God is actually to be part of the imaging, part of the reflecting. You remove God from it, and what gets reflected is this kind of reverberating self in which I am me, uh, I think, therefore I am. Or as Satan says, or, you know, the king of Tyre, 
I am, and there are none besides me. God can say, I am that I am, but even God says it in Trinity, in a plurality. And what we would do then is, in our isolation and alienation, we would pronounce our own being. We would think our way to be. Again, I'm never sure, you know, when you start using the psychoanalytic or philosophical, if we lose people. But I think it's an experience that once you can tap into people's experience, I just presume that all people have had this experience. That we all go through a period in which we try, we're arriving at our identity, but it's like we never quite get there. So that's the intersection of Zizek, uh, Lacan, and uh, by, by the way, they're both well aware of this. Lacan just says, well, I, you know, what I, what I just said about the father and the relationship to the father, this is what Kierkegaard calls sin. And so they're both very aware that they're following Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Kierkegaard is just everywhere. When you start reading modern philosophies, near, nearly everybody is in the continental or, you know, all these guys have read Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to six, which I may have already done, describe the role of being in philosophy, theology, in its proper place. Dunn Scotus does the whole thing with the university of being, conjoined with William of Ockham. And they're both talking about the world as if there are no, you know, we think of the Platonic forms in which the universals reside in the forms. You know, there are no universals in the world, but a way of saying that, is the reality of who God is, is not in the world. And so what we have in the world is just the words, is just the the naming of things, nominal name, you know. This is actually the Franciscans, both William of Ockham and Dun Scotus are Franciscan. Are you familiar with who Richard Rohr is today? I've heard of him. He's kind of among young people up here. He's he's a monk, you know. I think the whole image of the monk and the meditating, and and of course he's talking about re-enchanting the world. But the the kind of the irony of this is, it's precisely Franciscan thought as he is selling it, Dun Scotus that disenchanted the world. Hmm. And I never quite, you know. So the whole notion of modernity is the idea of the secular. What we mean by the secular is God has been emptied out of the world. You know, I think this is just sort of human experience. In a, in the medieval Western world, atheism was probably not even a possibility for most people. In other words, everybody believed in God. It didn't mean that they were a good Christian. But if you were going to be a robber, you, you were a Christian robber because that's what everybody was. To be a non-believer or an atheist or something else, was not on the people's horizon of meaning. You know, it just isn't, didn't fit. But in the secular world, people can actually choose. And that in of itself is saying that what has, that there is an, a, a different subjectivity that is founded. And this is Charles Taylor. He's been written a big book on secularism. Uh, an easy way, I did a sermon this past week actually on this. The word loneliness is a word that only appears in uh, in eighteen around eighteen hundred in English. There is no word for loneliness prior to eighteen hundred. And so, what I think we're literally describing is a different experience of the world in the secular. That this is then the end result of the university of being. No, I'm still I'm still kind of confused. This is the discussion with Karl Barth. The analogia entus, the the analogy of being. And so he says the analogy of being is the Antichrist. And what Bart is thinking about is really he's thinking more about Dun Scotus than anybody. And his idea is that the analogy of being gives rise to modern rationalism and a theology that is dependent upon reason. And he's saying that's the way that the Nazis got control of the church there's the presumption that human rationality, you know, this is quite true with his professors, became disillusioned with theological liberalism. What is theological liberalism? It's the idea of a kind of rationalism uh, that you can arrive at God. You know, this is in fundamental, in our circles, you know, you normally, when you would do apologetics, you said, okay, here are these arguments for God. 
Now, this is the way that Cottrell begins his theology book. Here are these arguments for God. Now we can believe that God exists, so let's open the Bible. Yeah. Well, the problem is the God that you get existing is the God of philosophers, the God of being, the God of, of a university of being, in which you can come arrive at God through pure reason. This is another way of talking about ontotheology. Yeah. And, of course, where this all ends up is God is dead. Wouldn't be, this be also kind of like what... Uh, the greatest the thought. thought. The greatest thought, or yeah. I think it is, yeah. I'm trying think, to argue God through reason, through thinking. And, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I think it is, because he's saying that I've captured God in this argument. I've named God. God, you know, the name of God, the greatest thought that can be thought. And so literally, he thinks God. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think Anselm is the perfect illustration of this. Now, most people would disagree with me, or many people would disagree, and because Anselm is in the wrong place. You know, he's 1100. Yeah. And what I just said sounds very modern. But of course, Rene Descartes is going to do what Anselm did. In fact, he admires Anselm. And he doesn't like Aquinas. I think Anselm is the precursor to all of this. Now, Anselm does preserve, though, or at least theoretically, that God is separate ontologically. But in, in the argument, what I'm saying is, yeah, but he, the idea is that we actually cross that ontological divide through reason. Maybe it's not a great question, but the point of the question is to be able to identify the modern the secular, it is an unfolding of this philosophical orientation that again is, is I think, caught up in a kind of psychological orientation. You know, it is Descartes, and Descartes is describing a, a modern psychology in which the interior, the inside, and the outside are, Charles Taylor would describe it, that we, we live in a kind of buffered individualism, that our thought has become a kind of entity unto itself. Talking about the role of being in theology, the way theology is being taught, at least the way it was taught to me, it's philosophy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's the, that's the thing I always get frustrated with, is yeah. people say, oh, that accident, he does all that philosophy. No, that's precisely what I'm not doing. Yeah, it's a deconstruction of it. Here's all the evidence for God, then this is the Bible. And now it's like, how do you make that leap? Like, you just described any type of God. You gave an argument for any God. Like, a, a Buddhist can use this argument, too. <laughs> like, any any uh, pagan can use the same arguments. So how do you make the transition from the, that argument to the God of the Bible? I mean, that, that was never answered at, at that moment, but... That is why God died. That is to state what you're stating even stronger. It's not just that you can't distinguish this God. I think that this God gives us the God of the philosophers, who is precisely not the God of the Bible. Yeah. The God of the philosophers can never become incarnate. You can never have God in the flesh once you have bought into I think, the philosophical arguments. You can kind of believe that. And in fact, I think that's the problem in a lot of Western Christianity is the God that they're thinking of is, is Aristotle's unmoved mover. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. God is in Christ. I think we, you know, we don't need to qualify that. God is in Christ. Uh, certainly there is God as Trinity and there's the Father. But I think that all of who God is we, can, we come to who God is through Christ. I'm not saying Jesus is the Father, but we know the Father through the Son. And so we don't have access to God by alternative means. I don't mean by that that, oh God, we can't you know, understand something about God, but to presume that we can arrive at the God of the Bible through natural philosophy gives us the God that Nietzsche pronounces dead. I think that's precisely why the church is emptied out, because the God of the philosophers or Western philosophical understanding came to an end. I mean, that's the pronouncement 
of yeah. Hegel. That's that's really what we're up against. That Western philosophy came to a dead end, and it doesn't work. Which is Christian Platonism. Christian Platonism. Being, being, being confused with Christianity. Yeah. The received understanding of Plato is dualism. Yeah. Is there another understanding? Is there a kind of participatory ontology? Maybe. Maybe you could talk about that in Platonic terms. And I, I have no great objection to that. Uh, but that's not the received understanding of, of who Plato is. Yeah. People like David Bentley Hart, I, sometimes I feel like, well, at least from what I've read from him, the way he describes God sometimes to me sounds a lot like the God of the philosophers. Well, he would say that. He would just say that up front, that Aristotle got it right. Which is where the idea of like God's being apathetic and all that stuff that like, comes in. That's right? it. He does not experience emotion. He doesn't change. You know, so a lot of this, I think, well, we can, we can affirm that. But understand who God is, is, in, is to be found in Christ. Yeah. And so Jesus wept. <laughs> Jesus is human. And so it, I don't know. I'm not saying that I understand who God is apart from Christ, but I think he is. In other words, what he wants to talk about is who God is apart from Christ. Yeah. And I don't know very much about that. I don't think we know anything about that. I do think we de need to affirm the transcendence of God. I'm not saying that God is transcendent. But the depth to which we can describe that transcendence, to imagine that that, you know, heart, in Hart's phrase, the beauty of the infinite. Well, I think we have to have the beauty of the infinite in finite terms. Yeah. And so Hart, literally, he calls himself a Neoplatonist. And he believes that the New Testament, in Paul's description of the flesh, that Paul is describing a kind of proto-dualism. I don't think Paul is describing a dualism between the body and the spirit, yeah. but Hart does. He really thinks that Paul denigrated the body. You know, when he talks about the flesh, Hart thinks he just means the body. I, I just think that's mistaken. Yeah. You know, I, I like a lot of the stuff that he's done, but the two things that I just named, you know, his Neoplatonism, his focus, as you mentioned, on apophaticism or upon the unchangeable. Certainly we need to affirm in some way the unchangeableness of God, but we only know that through Christ. Yeah. I think he has a kind of disembodied view of salvation. I just don't buy it. Yeah, I haven't read much from him, but he does seem to me to be a, a better philosopher than a theologian. Now, if Matt were here, he might take issue with <laughs> yeah, he, he, he would. <laughs> Everything I said, Bob. Okay, that was week seven. Oh, week seven, what comes after postmodernism? I just see postmodernism as a deconstruction of the modern. You get you kind of have to be careful there because the word is such a buzzword. And people say, well, if you know you buy into postmodernism, then you're flaky. All I mean is that modernism or a philosophical rationalism enlightenment christianity it, it proved not to be the case it's not true and so to my mind postmodernism is just a negative statement it's the end of the modern and i think christianity is what comes after postmodern a true christianity that is not built upon the foundationalism of modernism so rene descartes his whole theory is built upon foundations of reason I'm not saying that as Christians we're unreasonable, but we begin with faith and we reason through faith. We don't begin with reason and faith and reason are not two separate categories. So like I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, Nietzsche, his, his criticism, which of course was against the uh, Christian Platonism. I think as Christians, we would say, yeah, that, let's leave that behind. <laughs> That that type of God is dead. So let's go back to to the New Testament uh, God we find in Christ. So so that would be definitely a way of giving postmodernism a positive side to it. With like you said, that there's a whole talk about being something extremely negative. But but yeah, I think once we get rid of this philosophical way of explaining God, we can go back to Christ. 
You see God through Christ, not through reason or or faith in the sense of a cognitive assertion. Yeah, you know, somebody approached Karl Marx and said, "Well, Professor, what do you do with reason?" And he says, "Well, I use it." In other words, it's not that we're throwing reason out; it's that we're not building a foundation on any foundation other than Christ. Yeah. You certainly use reason as part of faith, but it's not a ground in and of itself. Yeah. There may be other parts of this that we, we need to say. And, you know, that with the stuff we've done with Wittgenstein and, you know, language, the thing that we need to continually be aware of is that we're creatures. We're finite. And human language is created. It's contextual. Let me say it in a, in a kind of offensive way. And then let me explain it. That for us, truth is relative. You know, that'll get everybody uh, hepped up. But all I mean by that is we do not have transcendent truths of reason. We don't have access to the forms. Truth comes to us historically, incarnate in Christ. And that means that we do apprehend the truth from a particular place. And we can't escape that. That's why Christ came to us and we don't go to him. He came to inhabit a particular people, a particular language, and that all takes translation. I don't particularly like the word contextualization because uh, part of that is that I'm afraid it gives too much strength to culture. And I'll come back around. But in other words, do we contextualize the Bible I mean, in a sense, we, of course, we need to, if you're going to read it in Spanish, uh, you need to read it. And probably you, you don't want to use the same idioms and metaphors that they might use in Spain as in Mexico. That my understanding is that we're given a universal insight into the human predicament that all cultures in some way are bound up in. And I'm not saying that we can predict beforehand how that might work out. That the bondage of sin may look different from culture to culture and place to place. But I think the deep grammar, though, gives us an insight into that universal predicament. And so I think we have to have that kind of implicit trust in the authority of Christ and the thing that's exposed to us. And then certainly we need to look at culture and our place in light of that, but we don't just translate everything in terms of our culture, because the culture itself needs deconstructing. Yeah. You know, in Japan, the word amai, uh, I had a guy, actually, he's a very sharp guy. He's probably a lot smarter than I am. He came over, he was a missionary in Japan, and he was second generation Japanese, so he had the language and he came and studied with me, and I taught him, you know, the, the stuff that I do, did was doing at that time was psychoanalysis with Amai. Amai, Amayadu is dependence. And he just thought, oh, this is the key to all things Japanese. And so if we're going to teach about Jesus, we'll have to contextualize it in the language of Amai. My point would be just the opposite. I think that Amai is indeed a key insight into Japan, but I think it's an insight into the failure of what it means to be human in Japan. And so rather than contextualize the gospel to Amai or Amayadu, I think we need to deconstruct that category and saying being Japanese, in fact, is a deadly orientation. But I just presume that's always, you know, in some way, maybe in different language, that's always what we're going to be about. When we talk about culture, we understand, I think, especially in a postmodern context, yeah, we're all part of cultures, and that's the idiom, and that's the way that we come to things. But there is also the sense that we need to be enculturated into Christ. Yeah, I don't mean to say, oh, we got to stop being Mexican or stop being American or Japanese. But I think all of those categories need redemption. Yeah, which would be what happened at Pentecost, I would say. Like all the languages and cultures that uh, were created at Babel 
somehow find it their fulfillment in in Pentecost. So we, yeah. we don't, like you said, we don't stop being American or, or Mexican, but somehow in Christ, there's a unity that we have that those categories cannot separate. They don't define us, yeah. In a sense, we, you know, you don't stop being Jew or Greek, but that's no longer dividing. And so that, that's connection, you know, connected with above the origin of language and the nature of salvation. Uh, I think that we tend to make language itself an absolute. And by that, I mean, you know, in Japan, Japanese is an identity. And by that, I mean both the language and the nationality. Yeah. But that is a case in point, I just think, of what we always do, that we're going to find the truth in language per se. Language is a medium yeah. in the same way that law is a medium. If we take God for a human word, then we've just made him into a cultural icon. Thanks a lot for your help. It, it was it was extremely helpful. Oh, good, good. I, I think I was I was grasping some of those things, but I, I needed a little bit more context to the whole thing. Yeah, I, several of those philosophers, like I know a few things about them, but I I'm not too familiar with them, so it, it was helpful. So. Good deal. Good. All right. All right, Alex. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.